Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag, where I answer your questions about anything other than professional tennis. I don't want to hear it. It's the off season. You ask me about anything else. That is the prompt uh, for this week's mailbag. It is something that I am going to do once a year. I think I did it for the first time last December, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And I think that you guys feel the same because triple-digit comments on the YouTube community tab once again. Appreciate that. I was also taken aback at how well some of you know me. There were a lot of very tailored questions that that kind of spoke to my interests in a way where, you know, clearly I'm not just like a stranger to some of you. I, I guess many of you have been watching and listening for a long time, but uh, for me that was interesting and cool to see. And lastly, before I get into it, so many of these questions make me like think deeper about certain things that I wouldn't have thought about otherwise. So um, this is always really, really cool. Let's get going. Uh, first one is from Ashley. What's on your bucket list? Let's say top three to five things you want to do for the sake of timing. So... I, um, I've never been a big bucket list guy, honestly, and I'm not an adventure guy. I'm not a thrills guy. I don't like rides. I don't mountain climb like those, those typical bucket list things that people have. I don't normally, I'm, I'm not really that guy. I could think of one that's, that would fall under the category of like classic bucket list material, which has to do with the fact that I've never really driven a super powerful car before. And uh, I, I used to do a little bit, teeny bit of, of go-kart racing when I was little, and I loved it. I just never really got got into it in any really serious way uh, or did it with any frequency, but I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And uh, I kind of want to drive a big boy car fast around a track. There is uh, one way that I know I could do that. Uh, Los Angeles has this Porsche Experience Center in Carson. Carson is, by the way, also the place where the USTA has their main uh, Southern California training center. But uh, Porsche has this massive track there. They will let you uh, choose a car, get taught how to drive by like a professional driver. Then you can race a Porsche around a track. Uh, the the most you know amazing vehicles that they have on site. You might spend like three thousand dollars. The more economy Porsches, oxymoron. Uh, that's like around like a six hundred dollar experience. So I guess it's attainable. But that's one thing that's kind of been on my mind that I want to do at one point. Uh, but other than that, like my big three, and you guys asked me about these things, you know, in other comments. I, I you guys know I love sports. I love food. I love music. So a lot of the things that I think about for, oh, I want to go do these things. I want to have these adventures. They have to do with those things. So there are some, some venues, some sports venues in the United States that 
uh, have, you know, particularly electric atmospheres that I've always wanted to experience. Cameron Indoor Stadium for Duke basketball, Allen Fieldhouse for Kansas basketball. The the Superdome in New Orleans seems really cool for for Saints games. In terms of football, I, I don't even know which venue I want to single out. Maybe the big house in Michigan. But uh, as somebody who grew up in New York and went to Syracuse University, I feel like I haven't experienced that big SEC like or, or top-of-the-line Big Ten football experience either. So those things certainly come to mind. Uh, th there's stuff with food, like places in L.A. that are an hour and a half away that I've never actually like wanted to or— uh, carved out the time to drive to or spots that are just so prohibitively expensive that I haven't, you know, I haven't been there because of that. Uh, there's plenty of bucket list places that would fall under those categories. Uh, music. Who do I want to see? Uh, uh, Anderson Pack is one. I want to see Anderson Pack live. I love his stuff. And uh, Tyler, the creator as well. I, I, um, I was watching a video recently of his show at uh at his festival camp camp flognaw and uh, i feel like he's probably the best performer in rap right now uh okay i'm gonna leave it at that let's keep it moving let's go to the next one this one uh from wtjhd which sounds like some kind of television station hi gil always enjoy your videos how do you plan slash prepare your content and do you have any any ritual that you need to do and also share a little bit, how do you know Alex Gruskin? And also about your three channel. Who gave you the first idea of that channel? Uh, all right. So yeah, th this comment didn't actually get any likes, but I feel like it's a really good thing to address uh, on this kind of show, um, I guess. So how do I plan slash prepare my content? I'll, I'll give you the answer for a basic Monday match analysis. So first, you know, when I'm watching the match, I am charting every point in my own kind of note-taking style that I've developed. It's nothing crazy or, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's rocket science, but, you know, just the way that I've gotten used to taking notes during a match. And then after that's done, uh, usually I will take, I will take about a half hour to maybe even an hour uh, just with me and my own thoughts to create a structure for the Monday match analysis, which is obviously kind of mapped out in my head. Okay, what do I think is the first thing I should talk about? And, you know, maybe what might transition nicely after that? And, you know, basically just figuring out the structure for the show. And then, you know, just writing out more thoughts. That usually takes about an hour. Uh, and then I'd say for the next hour, uh, it's usually going back and, and doing some rewatching. And part of that process is usually not always uh, taking some screenshots that I can use for the show as well. But it also might be uh, clarifying what happened in certain points. And then, of course, going back to the outline and, and my notes and kind of updating those notes. So usually after I'm watching a match, it's a, a you know, there, there is a range based on how easily things come to me. I think it's at least two hours that it takes for me to be ready to record. Um, and I'd say if I'm struggling more with stuff and I have to do uh, re-watching longer, assuming I'm covering one match, then maybe it can take me up to four hours. So that's kind of my process for that. Uh, how do I know Alice Gruskin? I mean... You know, I don't remember what the very first time is. I can remember the first time I became aware of him, and that's when I read a, a an article on Cracked Rackets about Francis Tiafo. And I'm like, wow, this is this is good stuff. I really like this article. Gruskin like never writes anymore, so that that's like a thing of the past. When Gruskin used to write articles, now he's just full on a podcast. Uh, guy, I guess, and, and commentary, obviously, for Cracked Rackets. I don't remember if I went on his podcast first or if he went on my podcast first, but, you know, that's how, that's the nature of how our relationship started in simple terms. And three, three is an interesting one. So during the pandemic, when tennis was not happening, I I reached out to Amy Lundy to have her on. Similar to how I 
how I had Gruskin on my radar. I read an article by Amy for 538.com. I still remember what it was about. It was about Novak Djokovic's second serve. I thought it was extremely well written. I loved how data-driven it was. I thought that it was uh, the kind of tennis content that is uh, is pretty rare nowadays, which is uh, highly, highly technical and between the lines and detailed. So I loved it. So I reached out to Amy. I was doing a series at the time, which was looking back on old matches with a guest and kind of talking through a match. And I, I wanted it to be a match that was meaningful to the guest. So I basically asked Amy, what match do you want to talk about? We did Serena Williams versus Kim Kleisters. It was a U.S. Open semifinal. I forget which year it was, but uh, Serena had the incident with the lines judge. So it was whatever year that was. And... Then I, I think it, it must have been maybe a month later or, or so, Amy reaches back out to me and says, hey, so do you know Joel Drucker? I said, yeah, I, I've kind of heard of him. She told me about how they are close friends. They have been kicking around this uh, an idea to try to do a podcast, and they haven't really been able to get it off the ground and running. So Amy thought that, you know, I was an intriguing, I guess, candidate to be the person who would help her and Joel uh, actually get this podcast off the ground and become the third member, uh, the third on-air member of that podcast in addition to, you know, doing the some of the technical aspects that they didn't have expertise in. And Amy, I think it was, you know, I don't know if it was Amy or Joel, but they had the idea of having this niche podcast about... Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, which in a way is not so, it's not so crazy, right? Across all sports, there are writers who focus on one team, right? That's completely normal. Even in politics, right? How do, how do these big newspapers divvy up political coverage? Well, they say, you, you cover this candidate, you cover that candidate, and you cover the other. And you have these beat writers who focus on one person. But in tennis, nobody was really doing that. And here we have these three massively, massively, massively popular players who, you know, were still at the time, even in the twilight of their careers, still at the very, very top. And we wanted to, you know, we just thought it was going to be an idea that people enjoyed and generated a lot of interest. So that is how three started. Let's go to the next one. From David, could you share with us your Spotify wrapped if you're a Spotify user? Yes, I am a Spotify user. It is uh, probably the subscription of all my subscriptions that is most worth the price I pay every month. Now, I do know that there are some issues around how well Spotify or not well Spotify pays artists. So, you know, that part is a bummer, but man, yeah, I... I, I couldn't live without Spotify. So uh, I will show you guys my wrapped. Here are my top genres. A little bit of rock, a little bit of alternative hip-hop, a little bit of pop, a little bit of alternative R&B, and some rap. I think it looks like rap was the most. This wasn't the most uh, precise way of showing the genre breakdown by Spotify. What is that, supposed to be a bagel? Okay, my top five artists. I'll talk you through them. Here we go. At five... And then we'll go up from there. Five Red Hot Chili Peppers. I've probably said this before. Maybe I said it last year on this very mailbag. But Chili Peppers are my nostalgic band. My band of nostalgia. My The first band that I loved when I was like six, seven years old. And, uh, and my older brother kind of, I think, introduced me to them if my memory serves. Um... This year, they did release an album, and uh, that's very relevant. So I'm an albums listener. So every year when I look at my Spotify wrapped and my top artists, pretty much every single time, it's somebody released an album that I liked. Because if someone releases an album that I like, I will listen it, listen to it from start to finish a lot, like many, many, many times in the car, uh, long drives when I'm doing work. So it's never, it basically, if you don't release an album 
in the year that we're talking about, you're never going to be among my top artists. And that's just because of my music listening habits. So uh, the Chili Peppers at the very end of 2022 released uh, Return of the Dream Canteen. And uh, I thought it was a really fun album, very energetic, uh, fun to play, you know, very loud. I thought there were, um, you know, some clunkers in there, some skips, but very, very fun and energetic Red Hot Chili Peppers album. Probably my favorite album of theirs since Stadium Arcadium, which to give you guys an idea was in like 2008. Number four, Caroline, Caroline Polacek or Polacek. I have never, I had never been into her music before this year, but um, she released basically an art pop record. So it has like the aesthetics of pop music, but as you'll immediately hear, it's not made for radio or, you know, top, top, uh, top 50 billboard kind of sound at all. It's uh, a lot of experimental you know, song structures and sounds and look on first listen, like it's out there, but then you realize, I guess, as you kind of learn to accept what you're getting into that uh, it's really, really gorgeous and the whole like soundscape of the record. And I want to remind myself what it's called. Uh, is really, really unique. So uh, yeah, that's a new one. Again, never listened to her before this year. Her album is called Desire I Want to Turn Into You. Yeah, if you are like, if you think you can get behind an art pop album, I recommend it. Number three is SZA. This kind of surprised me, but yeah, SOS was a really good album. Um, I, I liked SOS, probably the best, I'd say handedly the best R&B album of the year. Very long record as well, but it it doesn't drag as much as albums of that length usually do. I think there are just enough enough highlights dispersed throughout the track list that it's a pretty engaging listen. Number two is hilarious, man. I mean, so this is Nicholas Breitel. I, I wonder how many of you know who that is. But uh, he is a composer or, I don't know, basically he does soundtracks for movies and TV shows. And the reason he was my number two artist this year is because he did the soundtrack to Succession, which I talked about last year. I'm a huge Succession fan and uh, season the, the last season, season four, was this year and I, it, it hit me this year that I love the music so much in the show that like I should explore it by itself. I should explore it as music on its own. So I did that this year and uh, I really enjoyed kind of doing work while succession music was on. I, with that said, I am shocked. I'm shocked that it was my number two. I didn't think I listened to it that much, but uh, clearly I did. And number one, was Lana Del Rey. One last look at it. Um, Lana, Lana's album, uh, Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? I'm pretty sure I got that right. And I mean, yeah, that's usually Lana Del Rey. Song titles and album titles are as zany and long as that. Yeah, not surprised. Not surprised at all. Probably the album that I played most out of any album this year was that one. Just uh, beautiful, uh, very, um, very relaxing, uh, very relaxing album, very beautiful album, uh, very personal album when you start to listen to the lyrics. Lana, um, you know, such a, such a unique vocal delivery that, that I tend to like and um, especially when it's when the instrumentation and the production um, suits her as well as it did on on this particular album, which I feel like it has since her 2019 release, Norman Effing Rockwell. Uh, because before then, Lana Del Rey was her, her sound was a lot different. I feel like artistically, she's taken a turn for for the better, at least as far as my enjoyment levels are concerned. So there's my Spotify wrapped. All right, let's go to the next one. Um, it is from Nick 
Hey Gil, is being a tennis analyst your full-time job or do you do other jobs on the side? This got 28 likes, so a lot of people don't know the answer to this, understandably. Um, this is this is my, so it depends, like yes and no, right? My main job is tennis channel commentator. That is my main priority, my main focus, and to put it bluntly, that is how I make most of my money. Uh, this, though, is a beautiful way. YouTube is a beautiful way to kind of fill in the blanks because the way the way the network works, the way Tennis Channel works, obviously you have like a big roster of talent and some people are going to work some weeks, other people are going to work other weeks. So, you know, say I work one week out of the month, two weeks out of the month for Tennis Channel, uh, I can, you know, whenever I'm not doing that, I can be doing this. Keeps me engaged with the sport, continues to kind of feed my brain and I work my knowledge and I think deeply and I at, at times build connections through this and I hone my craft in other particular ways. So I've just been really, really lucky that I have these two things that kind of work off of each other, but at the same time, they're completely separate from each other, um, like completely separate, right? Like there's no... This had what I do on this YouTube channel has literally nothing to do with tennis channel. Um, and then I also do some other commentary, you know, other play by play by play announcing. Um, that part of my career has uh, has been a little bit, you know, less I guess high profile. You could even say like less successful thus far. Uh, but I, I just try to keep it going uh, because I like it. I, it's a it's a craft I love to work on, and I, I I have a lot of interest in being well rounded and you know casting a wide net, being able to do a lot of different things in sports broadcasting. So those are the big three. But hey, I should say this because some of you might find it interesting. Um, I'm I've started to do a little bit of coaching as well in in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, at the, uh, the the JCC, the Jewish Community Center in Tucson, which I do think is important to say because some people may not know, uh, and this is true for all JCCs, open to everybody. Uh, you don't need to be Jewish at all. Everybody is welcome uh, to utilize those programs, and in this case, play tennis. And I was approached to to help with uh, with coaching, and I said, heck yeah, let's do it. So... I've been working with some some juniors at uh, at this uh, ACT program in Tucson, which is has been a lot of fun. Um, I hit in a lot with the kids. I it's a way for me to to get on the court, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. So that's another thing that I've picked up recently. Next one is from member Enigma Paradox. What's your dream vacation or country you've always wanted to visit? Good one. Right now, the answer to that question is Japan. And that is because I am I'm partial to more, you know, urban experiences. Not that I can't appreciate you know, getting away and and seeing seeing beautiful sights in more in more serene venues, whether it be a rainforest, whether it be uh you know, uh canyons in the desert, right? Oh, you get the picture, mountains. I I do love cities. I like a lot of people and culture, tends to be what I enjoy, and food. And that is kind of why I think food is, is one of the big reasons why Japan is is kind of the place for me right now that I, I mostly fantasize about, about vacationing to or visiting. And a lot of that also stems from the experience that I've had in Los Angeles where this whole diverse uh, range of, of Japanese cuisine has kind of been introduced to me in a way that I, I really wasn't exposed to much growing up in, in a suburb of New York and certainly, you know, going to school in Syracuse. I, I think, you know, just exploring LA and, you know, seeking out these uh, different kind of Japanese um, 
these Japanese restaurants of different categories. I've realized that Japanese food is so much more than sushi. And don't get me wrong. I, I love sushi. I love sashimi. I, I love, um, I love nigiri. I, I love raw fish. Okay. I do guilty as charged. There's so much more to Japanese food and I've really taken such a, a great appreciation for all of it, whether it be their version of fried chicken, karage, uh, learning to appreciate great ramen as so much more than a cheap microwave meal that you get off of the shelf at a supermarket, you know, understanding that ramen can, can really actually be great and, um, complex, uh, you know, mazumen is like the Japanese version of Italian pasta. It's ramen kind of without the soup. Uh, soba, soba noodles are made from buckwheat and you dip the noodles um, and, they're, and they're served cold. That uh, Soba goes really, really well with tempura, which is something that most people have heard of. Uh, you know, the way that, uh, a way of kind of lightly frying um, really anything, vegetables, anything, fish. Uh, tenkatori, kind of Japanese version of barbecue, uh, steward meats cooked over a, a, a flame, tonkatsu, fried pork cutlets, uh, Japanese curry often accompany such cutlets. And, uh, I love Japanese curry. I've, I've taken such a liking to it. I, I've never tried it. I never tried it until I got to LA. Uh, and then even like Japanese Neapolitan pizza which uh, which I've tried, which I know has become really popular in Tokyo. You kind of get the picture. I'll shut up about it. I don't know how interesting this is, but I've just been amazed. The more I explore Japanese food, the more I'm in love with it. And I'd, I'd love to go to Japan to experience it in an even elevated sense. All right. Related question. We're staying on food. This one is from Rubaki. Gil, since you're a big foodie, I was hoping you would share some of your favorite meals from this year. Happy holidays and appreciate the coverage as always. So when I saw this question, my first thought was, how in the world am I going to remember the meals I had this year? Um, but luckily, I am a picture taker. I am a picture taker when the food arrives on the table or after I make the food and put it on the table. So uh, I took a nice scroll through my camera roll and that was a great reminder of the food that was most meaningful to me this year. This isn't necessarily all like the best meals I've had, the most incredible meals I've had. Uh, I just tried to single out the moments that that kind of meant more to me in the year 2023, uh, for whatever reason. All right. Uh, here's my first photo. This is Chicago beef. This is Chicago beef at a place called tiny's high bar in LA. The stuff on top is Gardenera. It's on a, on a special kind of roll. The reason why I singled this out is because uh, the TV show, the bear was my favorite show that I watched all year. I, I love the show, the bear with all my heart. God, God, it's good. And, uh, if, if you watch that show, you know, that the Chicago beef is a big part of it. I have never been to Chicago in my life. I really need to visit Chicago. I even have friends there. Um, so, and I had never had a Chicago beef. I watched this show. I'm like, I need to find Chicago beef. And I found this. It's really good. I've really enjoyed it. And I love this, this little dive bar that serves these Chicago beefs. So, um, yeah, I, I think that one has special meaning because of how I came to trying it, which is through this TV show that, that gave me so much joy. Uh, next one, this is a, um, Kanpachi tostada from a place called hall box. And, yeah, it's one of the most amazing and incredible things that I ate all year. No doubt about it. Uh, but also, this restaurant has gotten a lot of hype since I tried it. Literally named LA Times Restaurant of the Year like two weeks after I went. That was a trip, uh, a food experience that I thought was really, really special. This one's a little different. I want to get to the home-cooked stuff now. This was a meal that... Me and my my really good friends from college all did together. 
I did not make the ribs. I helped a little bit with the ribs, but it wasn't my recipe. I did not make the mac and cheese. My contribution to this meal was the watermelon salad. And, you know, mind you, I, I was the last to kind of figure out what I was going to do because, you know, we knew we were going to make ribs and mac and cheese. And then it was kind of like, all right, what can I make here that's going to complement those things? And mac and cheese is really heavy and ribs are, are sweet and, and fatty. So I needed something that felt very fresh and very, very cleansing to kind of start the meal. And I came up with, I didn't actually come up with this. I ate this in New York city once. Uh, it was a salad that I ate in New York city. I immediately wrote it down because it was so simple, so easy and so great. It's a uh, watermelon, goat cheese, red onion, mint leaves, red wine, vinegar, and olive oil. Um, Look, is this the most incredible thing ever? The most impressive thing ever? No. But when I'm scrolling through my camera feed, um, and I just remember this meal with my best friends where we all made different contributions and we sit around and the ribs were great and the mac and cheese were great. Um, yeah, I, this is, this is one, this is what food is about, right? It's really about people bonding around people. And, uh, there's definitely nothing I ate this year that embodies that more. Okay. The next thing, very different. This was something I made just for myself and it's not all that visually pleasing. And that is because I did not put a lot of effort into the piece of food that you are looking at right now. This is a swordfish with a Chinese chicken salad dressing. Okay. Why was this one of the most memorable things I ate this entire year? It's because I kind of threw it together, made it by accident. And when I took a bite, it was as delicious as anything I put in my mouth all year long. And it tasted, it just tasted expensive. It tasted expensive. And as I, as I mentioned, here was the process. I had extra dressing that I, I did make the, the dressing homemade Chinese chicken salad dressing that you can find from Steven Cusato uh, of not another cooking show, a channel on YouTube that I watched. Here's the recipe. It was soy sauce, sesame oil, rice vinegar, sriracha, um, a mandarin orange juiced agave. I know I didn't use agave. I, I definitely subbed, I think honey in for agave, uh, Dijon mustard and oil, salt and pepper. So that was the dressing. I knew what it tasted like. I only had a little bit left. I knew I didn't want salad. Um, and I didn't have the ingredients for salad. So I'm like, let me just run over to whole foods. I think that this would taste great on a piece of fish, go to whole foods and, uh, swordfish, which is usually like $30 a pound. It was on sale. It was like $15 a pound. So, okay. Yes, that's going to work. That's totally going to work. I pick up a swordfish. I sear it in a pan. I dump this dressing on this. And, um, look, if I were to serve this at a restaurant, I would need to plate it up with, with, you know, something else on the side, but the fish, the piece of fish itself, just that alone literally tasted like $35, $40 entree at a fancy restaurant. And uh, to stumble upon that by accident, something that I, I literally just threw together quickly, a quick lunch just for myself was like such a magical moment, right? Okay, uh, let's end it on on one more. This Pizzeria Bianco uh, recently went there with my mom and my dad uh, who were visiting me in Arizona. So this was in Phoenix, the original location of Pizzeria Bianco, which is uh, really famous, kind of uh, got famous on Netflix. I forget what the show is called, but Christopher Bianco. And uh, look, is it does it live up to the hype? I wanted to include it because I felt like some of you, some of you may be familiar with it. Does it live up to the hype? Look, Nothing as hyped as Pizzeria Bianco actually lives up to the hype. Was it exceptional? Yes, it, it was. The crust is is uh, so, 
so crispy, so airy at the same time, um, and and just takes on so much of the flavor from the oven itself. Uh, that's that that's what great pizza crust is all about. And then you just can't. That's honestly the hardest part, right? Getting the crust right. Uh, then then don't screw it up by by using quality ingredients on top. And um, I think this in this case this is like you know wood fired mushrooms and. Uh, sauteed onions, and I think it was bufala mozzarella was the cheese. So Pizzeria Bianco, some of you may have heard of it. Really excellent pizza, despite the hype being absolutely through the roof. All right. Next one is from Violin60. You never told us about your experiences as a ball kid. Love your work. I ball boyed at the U.S. Open in 2013 and 2014. 2013, I've always regarded as the best two and a half weeks of my life. Seriously. It was my dream come true. The U.S. Open was my favorite place. I I dreamed of stepping on those courts. You know, honestly, at that point... I guess like I, I didn't think it was going to happen, but I would say I dreamed of doing it as a player. Um, and, you know, just to be that close to the action and to go to the U.S. Open every single day, it was magical. And I also had a lot of success and I felt like I was doing a good job. I was still playing baseball at the time and I got really good reviews from, from supervisors. And uh, I, I even there was one point where it was late at night because it had rained all day and a chair umpire came into the ball person's office and said, and, and just said that I did a really, really great job to my bosses. So that was my rookie year. And when I was a U.S. Open ball boy and the leadership in the regime has since changed, and I think it's a little bit more laid back now, but when I was doing it, it was really, really intense. It was cutthroat. And as a rookie, it was pretty hard to have success. And success as a ball boy is getting assigned to big courts. Big stadiums, ideally, or even just TV courts. And, you know, as a rookie, I actually worked a lot of TV courts. I did really well, and I, I got a shift on grandstand. Uh, the, it was the old grandstand, but, you know, it was still at the time the third largest court at the U.S. Open. And I did uh, Tommy Haas versus Yen Shen or Randy Liu. So that was the biggest match that I did. But I also did the Brian Bros. That was pretty cool. Um. So that was my rookie year. It was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the next year in 2014, it was a, a pretty different experience uh, because I did kind of struggle in, in certain ways. So on my first shift of 2014, which was the Monday of qualifying week, uh, a supervisor was, was observing our performance at the time. Uh, and I hit the chair, the top of the chair with a throw. Now, at the, at the time, U.S. Open ball people were expected to throw the ball across the court. Now it's a roll. But uh, that's a pretty bad mistake to hit the chair. It was like my first shift of the year. So, I mean, I, I should have had some kind of sympathy in that respect. But supervisors saw it. I kind of hurt my back as well during that shift. It was a bad start. And it was kind of downhill from there. My back continued to bother me. My, uh, because I was kind of, my assignments got way worse. I was kind of buried, I think, just because I hit the chair. Uh, just that one mistake uh, was kind of it, I believe. I don't think there were other reasons. Uh, and then I kind of had some psychological stuff. I kind of, I just wasn't confident on my throw. And it, it, it was a stressful time in 2014, just trying to do a good job, honestly. And after 2013, I stopped playing baseball. So maybe that also contributed to the decline of my throwing arm because I just wasn't really throwing as much as I was up until that, that 2013 uh, marker. So that was my experience, a basic synopsis of my experience as a ball boy. Definitely inspired me to continue pursuing tennis and continue to, you know, love and follow uh, professional tennis as, uh, as feverishly and as, um, as passionately as I've done since that point. 
Next one from Mr. CWL. This comment only got one like, but I just want to answer it because I love my car. Uh, the question is, what do you drive? I drive a Mazda CX-30. And I love it. Um, I think the interior space is, you know, kind of up there with the luxury brands, like up there with the the cars that you spend like 40,000 plus for and you know CX30 is is below that price range it's it's a little bit more affordable yeah the the biggest thing i appreciate about the car is definitely the interior space you just feel great in there uh but i i really like it on the outside as well especially compared to cars in that segment the compact suv segment uh i think just uh, yeah not not a lot of brands, in my opinion, have dropped the ball in that segment. Let's just say that. Uh, okay, next one is from Domination YT. Who would win in a tennis match, you or Alex Gruskin? Well, we've trained together two or three times. I, I think it's actually three. We've never played a full set. We've never played a full match. I mean, we are we're pretty close to each other in level, I would say. Uh, I think, you know, we'd both take the court expecting to win. Gruskin probably a little bit more than me. I, I think, look, like, I, I, I'm I okay with my chances. I think I could beat him, especially if I'm if my physical fitness is in a good place, which, uh, honestly, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not these days. Right now, it's pretty good. We have played two sets to four, and both times— Gruskin has won those sets 4-2, uh, one break a serve. I've also had break points in both sets. So I, I just feel like, you know, it's been close both times. Gruskin has gotten the edge. Um, he has converted on his break chances. I have not. And that's thus far how our head-to-head -head has gone. Uh, he is, he's tough though. He runs well. He's got, He's got good cardio because he's better than me. Like he he gets on the treadmill, he gets on the bike. Like he 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 works out his cardio consistently. I don't. Um, so that's kind of an advantage to him. He's got a really good two hander. His uh, his forehand uh, mine is better. I have a better forehand than him. I serve just as well as him. Uh, his backhand's definitely better than mine. So that's kind of the the tail of the tape. Next one from Austin. Mixed martial arts questions. Who is a prospect you are currently hyped on? Who is your current favorite champion? Do you have a fight of the year or fighter of the year? All right. So, uh, you know, clearly a lot of you guys know that I have uh, a history with, with MMA. I, I love the sport of MMA. I, uh, I even trained jiu-jitsu for a little bit. It was an amazing experience. I'd love to do it again. I'm just a little bit too focused on tennis to really uh, spend my time on the, uh, the jiu-jitsu mat these days. That said, and I, I wanted to answer this question, and I'll try to answer these specific questions. I have slowly over the last three or so years uh, just declined as a, a UFC follower. Uh, and it wasn't really a conscious decision. I didn't wake up in the morning, uh, you know, at the start of this year, at the start of last year and be like, you know what? I'm going to watch less UFC. It's just sort of happened. And and it's interesting because I, I do think numbers wise, the UFC has done really, really well in terms of popularity in the last couple of years. But uh, yeah, they've lost me a little bit. I don't know if it there just hasn't been enough individuals uh, to have captivated me. I, I do think the there's oversaturation. There's just too many fights every weekend, and it waters down the product. Uh, I think the the number of events held at the UFC Apex, which is a venue that has you know little fans and no environment for those who don't know, uh, that's really turned me off. I have no interest in really watching events that are held there. I, I just think it it kills it for me, and I don't even want to support it because I want them to stop doing it. And lastly, and by the way, I think I probably saved the most important one for last. UFC uh, was a very like social undertaking for me. It was a way for my my group of buddies to really bond on on a Saturday night. 
on a on a very kind of typical basis is uh we would we would watch fights uh you know late late on the east coast you know to one in the morning and sometimes you know that would be a night for us um and then even in college i was just surrounded by by more people including my roommate all four years who was a pretty big mma guy himself watching ufc was kind of a social thing and i i do think as aspects of my life have have changed socially like i've i've even kind of made certain sacrifices that have made me a little bit more isolated uh you know moving to the west coast not being in college anymore right everybody is more isolated compared to what they were in college it's just uh it hasn't really put me in a position to watch ufc pay-per-views as much um as as maybe i would want to or not even not even pay-per-views so but but even just regular fight nights that are on on free television or or whatnot so i think the combination of all of those things have made it so that i'm just less up on ufc these days that said i do try to you know there are there have been moments even this year there have been moments that have sucked me in where i have kind of dropped what i'm doing and make made sure to watch certain fights and there have been some some great moments so who's a prospect that i'm currently hyped on that one i don't really have a great answer for you on because that would require me to have a better knowledge of somebody who is less well known at the present who i have kind of tabbed for the future and i can't tell you i have that guy uh, who is my favorite current champion um this episode is brought to you by reese's peanut butter cups in breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Probably Sean O'Malley. I really respect Volk as a fighter. I like watching him fight, but he's not as captivating to me as O'Malley. Uh, Makachev's normally a guy who I'm rooting against for whatever reason. I like Leon Edwards. You know, it, it, I, I like him, but he doesn't really elicit much of a, an, an emotional response with me. Uh, Sean Strickland, not a huge fan of the guy. I prefer Izzy. So that's where I stand on that one. Uh, Alex Pereira, Alex Pereira, I should say. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have strong feelings on him. And John Jones. Look, John Jones is a lot of fun. I'll never miss a John Jones fight. I can't say I, I really, I root for John Jones. I don't know if I'd call him my favorite champion, but you know, um, I, I don't miss a John Jones fight. So there's that. I feel like the best moments in the UFC this year uh, were the the back-to-back -back title fights uh, where O'Malley beat Aljamain Sterling with uh, you know with a knockout in the second round, a TKO in the second round, and then uh, you know Sean Strickland beating Adesanya. It wasn't like a thrilling fight, but just like the way. The way it was so unexpected and so comprehensive and such a dominant defensive performance against the best striker or at least the best boxer in the UFC. Uh, that was so wild to see over the course of five rounds. Again, it wasn't like a barn burner. It wasn't this amazing, you know, uh, back and forth fight in the traditional sense. At the same time, you, you watched it and you were just like, what is going on here? So uh, I, I enjoyed the experience of watching that as well. Hey, Gil, this is a question about the show, but not about tennis. I'm just curious, how does your podcast listenership compare to your YouTube viewership? I'm a podcast listener. I like to listen when I'm on the go or doing household chores. Sitting down and watching an episode has never particularly appealed to me, though no fault of your own. You're a good-looking chat, Gil. Uh, beyond what you do, 
uh, beyond when you do video analysis, it just strikes me as more convenient to listen to an episode. I think I'm, I might be among some of your older listeners though. And I'm curious if YouTube viewership is stronger as I'm inclined to think this is a Gen Z preference. Um, yeah, good, good question. Great question. Because while you guys always see the YouTube viewership because it is made public podcast listenership, not so much. I will tell you that the YouTube viewership uh, completely trounces the uh, the podcast listenership, and like I'll just tell you straight up, podcast listenership is generally going to be between two thousand and thirty five hundred downloads. That has steadily grown uh, to my delight, but that's where we were kind of at this year which again was a good step up from last year. So as you guys know, pretty much anything I post on YouTube is going to do much better than that. It is kind of amazing though, because what uh, Stefan or Steven, I'm not sure which one, is probably Steven, uh, is saying right now is, uh, is something that honestly I would suspect, which is that what I do on this show is not very visually engaging, right? It is mostly just me talking. So you would think that, yeah, like you'd think maybe the audio version would be more popular. Not the case. I will say this, and this also is advice for anybody trying to start a podcast. The audio space, the audio platforms are atrocious for growth. Atrocious. So if you are not a famous person, you basically have no chance of growing an audience through these audio platforms. Like that's the, that's the harsh reality. So you're going to have to find a different way to, to, uh, capture the attention of your audience large scale and bring them over to your audio platforms. And I know creators who have done this through Snapchat. I know creators who have done it through TikTok. Uh, I've done it through YouTube, uh, maybe also partially through Twitter, right? But the reason why I think the audio numbers are so much lower is because the discoverability aspect on those platforms is so, so poor. And in addition, I also think you're on to something when you say that younger people prefer to watch YouTube. So there's that. From Tiger... I'm not even going to read the rest of this username. Uh, what are your thoughts on the new live action avatar? So you guys know I'm an avatar fan. I, uh, I, I wore that hoodie and everybody was commenting about the hoodie, but also in last year's, uh, mailbag, I talked about how much I liked the show. So, um, I'm a little like, I'm excited, but I'm also kind of nervous, right? When, when they made the last airbender into a film, a live action film, it was kind of a disaster. And I was kind of disappointed because I felt like there were, there was a large segment of the population who didn't watch the, I don't know if you want to call it a cartoon or an anime, whatever. Uh, they didn't watch the original I'll say. And they watched the the movie or the film and they were like, well, that wasn't any good. And now I'm going to kind of cast aside the entire series as a whole uh, because the film was so bad. So that sucked. And I love the story. I love the original. I'd love the live action to do that justice. I think that's also like really hard to do. Um, I think it's going to be eight parts. So that is quite a bit of runtime. Like I imagine the runtime is going to be at least eight hours. So that's, that's easier than making it into what a hour and 40 minute movie or, or something like that. I suppose that's good, but, um, it's almost like, can, can you make it better? Like, can you beat the original? And if you can't, then why are we trying? Look, this is the age old question with any successful book that's redone into a movie or so on. Like, I, I feel like it's pretty typical for a, a fan of that piece of work to, you know, be happy that they're going to get to relive it in, in a alternate iteration, 
but also be a little bit nervous and have your reservations about, well, first of all, hopefully it's not bad uh, because that has a negative impact on the entire reputation. Um, and also like you come in with some skepticism. Can it really be as good as the original? Is that even possible? From account, if you weren't doing tennis commentary, what would you be doing now? So I wanted to answer this question because it got 33 likes. Clearly people want to know the answer, but I don't really know the answer. I have no idea. I've wanted to be a sports broadcaster from the time I was like approximately 12 years old. And luckily, I and I have to stress that I'm very lucky to be in this position. I haven't had to contend with the thought or the idea of doing something else. So, you know, that's kind of been that. Now I can tell you the root cause of why I I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I mean, yes, I love sports. That part's obvious, but I really did want to do something that didn't feel like work. I did want to do something fun. Uh, I, you know, maybe I looked at what my, look, my mom and dad, they both, they both love what they do. Uh, so maybe that was an example but whatever it was going to be, I just didn't believe in the idea that you're going to go to work every day and be upset by the fact that you're working, that you're going to be looking at the, staring at the clock and waiting for it to, to the, the day to end so that you could be done with work. I mean, I, I just, I didn't want that. And I knew that I needed to find something that wasn't going to be that. So look, the, the media industry as a whole, which is the, the industry that, that I, again, gravitated towards. And I'm assuming when you ask this question, you mean if you weren't in, in the media industry, because the, the genuine answer is if I wasn't doing tennis commentary, I'd be a sports reporter or a play-by-play -play broadcaster, in another sport, or, uh, uh, maybe even like a producer, something, right? Something in media. Look, the money's bad in, in media. There's not enough jobs for the number of people who want to do it. It's, it's tough on family. It's, it can be a lot of travel. There are so many downsides of it. At the end of the day, you do it because you, you do it because you think it's fun. You do it because it doesn't feel like work. That's why everybody does it. So same thing for me. If I had to do something else, I would find something similar. Uh, I would probably still try to work in sports or maybe food. So that's the best answer I have for that. All right, let's end on this. From Abishek, hey Gil, since you seem like a person who is high on values, I would like to ask you the following. Are there any particular life philosophies that you absolutely love and live by? Great question. There are some, some values that, that resonate a lot with me. At the end of the day, they're all good. And I'm, I'm going to try not to get super preachy here. Nobody needs that. We all know, you know, good virtues, good values. There's, there's plenty of them. I'll tell you two that resonate with me are, are one passion, which really ties into the answer that I just gave, right? Like me going into sports broadcasting and tennis, that was me following my passion. Wasn't following the money. It wasn't following, you know, the, the easier path. It wasn't following anything else. It was just following passion. So similarly... I like to surround myself with people who, who care about things, who are passionate. Those are the people I tend to grad, uh, gravitate towards. And it doesn't, you know, it can be passionate about anything. And I will happily have a conversation with them and enjoy that conversation. As long as what they are talking about is something that they care deeply about. Uh, the other thing is loyalty. And it's just something that I've prided myself on, which is my friends stay my friends. We don't, we don't get hot and cold and, you know, fight and hate each other one day and love each other the next day. Uh, you know, I, I try my best to stay in touch with, with the people who I care about, um, even though that can be hard and I can definitely do a better job about that. But the point is your friends stay your friends, uh, and your loved ones stay your loved ones. And I, I just think it's important to, to nurture and put your, your relationships, your close relationships above all, because that, in my opinion, is the real key to happiness. I can talk about going into a career path 
that I felt was going to make me happy. And that's certainly what I did. But that's secondary. That's secondary in my well-being. And I know I'm very well aware of this to the relationships, right? The relationships in my life are what keep me going. And I think that's when it comes to the human race, I think that's true for, uh, for pretty much everybody. If I, if I may make that statement, I will leave it at that. Uh, thank you so much for everybody who participated in this mailbag. I really do appreciate it. Uh, this is a lot of fun for me and I'm, I'm honored that so many of you bring such thoughtful questions and take an interest in, uh, in asking me questions about non tennis. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I will see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.